Hello, everyone. This is Karen Aslan. I am the founder and CEO of Introduction Capital. Welcome to IntroCap Interviews, which is a recorded series of timely, in-depth interviews, primarily with key experts in the Canadian alternative investment industry, but also with compelling individuals across other disciplines. My intention for this series is to reward listeners with distinctive insights, wisdom, and authentic stories from some of today's most thoughtful leaders. Today's interview is with Josh Donaldson, who is the third baseman for the Minnesota Twins. Josh is a three-time MLB All-Star and was voted the American League's most valuable player during his highly successful 2015 season with the Toronto Blue Jays. Josh has collected sports cards since childhood, but became serious about investing in cards in 2012 and has over 200,000 cards in his personal collection. Hi, Josh. Hi. How are you? Good. Good, Karen. <laughs> Good. Well, it's really nice to have you here and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Josh, I wanted to um, ask you to start the conversation by talking about your early years. You have such an inspirational success story. You were born in Pensacola, Florida, where you played varsity baseball. Your mom, Lisa, raised you on her own and you moved to Mobile, Alabama, where you competed in football, basketball and baseball. And then you uh, were clearly at that time an all around athlete and played college baseball at Auburn University. So can you talk about those early years when you played all three of those sports and at what point and why did you choose to pursue baseball more seriously? Yeah. Um, early on, I, I was very active playing all three, just kind of whatever sport I was playing was my favorite sport at the time. Right. And that's, that's the sport that I kind of wanted to go professional in at the time. So uh, when it was football season, I wanted to be, professional football player and so and so forth uh, but yeah I mean there wasn't a lot of downtime uh, my mom was very busy uh, kept me involved and um, you know just kind of I think we're on my junior year of high school is when I really was like all right if I think that I'm going to go pro in a sport which I feel like I need to kind of start making a decision yeah. and um so baseball was the one that I felt like I probably had the best chance. To me, it wasn't my best sport uh, because baseball is more of a – it's a technique plus a physicality sport uh, to where basketball and, you know, football, there is some technique involved, but it's not as uh, as much as baseball to where it's just who, who was the better athlete, I felt like. What was your favorite sport? Was it football? I mean, football was probably my favorite. Basketball was probably my second, and baseball was my third. Um, really? Yeah, just I mean, football. I, I liked the ability to go and hit somebody else so <laughs> on the football the field. I liked the contact, and then I liked in basketball how you know the arena was really close, uh, how the fans and everybody were really close to the um, court. Oh, yeah. okay, and. Who influenced you through those years? That a lot. Yeah, I feel like I had a, a it's a long list of probably influences. I mean, my mom was my biggest one. She's my biggest supporter, biggest fan. Um, and you know, obviously, being raised in a single parent house, 
household. Uh, she had to take on many forms and many roles. And, you know, but also thankfully I had a bunch of friends that had uh, fathers in their lives that I could look towards and, um, you know, that would try to help me out as best as possible um, and, and look after me. And uh, Philip Walters was a big role model for me as far as always trying to look after me and, you know, take care of me as far as making sure that I was putting my best foot forward. Uh, then my high school coach uh, that I transferred high school to in, in Alabama uh, really just, you know, he wanted me to dream big. And at the end of the day, he would always tell me, if you want something, you're going to have to work for it. And mm -hmm. that was just something that he instilled. And that was something my mom also instilled at a very early age for me mm -hmm. um, was that you can do whatever you want, but you're going to have to work and it's going to get tough. But at the end of the day, she wouldn't let me quit. Mm -hmm. And not that I ever wanted to, um, at, at especially the younger ages. Um, but, you know, it was uh, my best friend, Bobby Cassava. His He played in the uh, major leagues for a little bit as well as a pitcher. And uh, his dad took after me, made, he, he looked after me and, you know, was definitely my uncle Chuck. Um, so I definitely had some father figures in there to try to keep me going, but, and make sure that I had some direction. So yeah. those were probably the four most influential. Wow. It's great that five. you had not only your mom, but those male figures to, mm -hmm. to help you. And anyone who knows your career history, Josh knows that you are a true competitor and you're really determined and focused mm -hmm. on winning. Sure. And I guess I want you to describe if you can remember your first experiences about being competitive and at what point you began really aspiring to, to play baseball professionally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, competitively, I mean, I remember being five, six years old in the front yard and we'd play all the kids would be, you know, in the neighborhood would be around and we'd figure out how to play some type of sport. Uh, whether it was soccer, football, baseball, whatever it may be. Um, and I remember always wanting to win. That's just kind of how I was. I don't, I don't, I don't know um, anything else. And when, whenever I didn't win, yeah. I you know, would go and practice and practice and practice until, you know, and hopefully get another chance and, you know, probably win after that. Did you learn how to be a good loser? No, I was a terrible loser. <laughs> my mom, my mom, my mom would always get on to me for that. Uh, I think that was part of, you know, what also gave me drive to want to be successful because that victory or that that sting from the loss yeah. would motivate me so much to want to go out and go out and and to be better, to not lose. Right. And I heard my mom would, if she was on the phone right now, she'd tell you when I was played video games, I'd break my controllers if I lost the game. And, I, you know, I had somewhat of a bad attitude. And my, uh, my high school coach always, he, he had a saying, uh, he's like a very, uh, you know, down to earth type of guy. Yeah. And very, you know, doesn't get riled up, very even kill and great man and but he would always tell me he's like i'd rather have a wild buck than you know a sleeping horse yeah 
And he said, we can always tone the buck down. Yeah. But, you know, it's hard to inspire a sleeping horse. So he always had fun with trying to, you know, kind of get me, get me to settle down sometimes because he knew that I was going 100% all the time. Right, right. I'm sure over the years you have uh, learned about sportsmanship and mm-hmm. you know, when you're, when you're competing, there's always going to be winning and losing. Yeah. Um, Josh, you worked really, really hard getting to the majors from the minors and you were called up to the majors for the first time on April 30th, 2010. You mm-hmm. filled in for an injured player and you made your debut as a pitch uh, pinch hitter. And, sh- and then you mm-hmm. struck out. And then the mm-hmm. next day you hit a two run home run on, uh, the first pitch by a Toronto Blue Jay player. Mm-hmm. And what I just wanted to ask what you remembered about those first um, two hits with the majors. Well, my first at bat, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Do you you know, I, I, yeah, I, we, I was in Sacramento, California, and we just had been on a bus and took a two hour bus trip to Fresno, excuse me, Fresno, California. And we had to play a team there. And halfway through the bus trip, our, our uh, athletic trainer was telling me, he's like, Josh, you, know, you have your passport. I'm like, passport? We're going to Fresno, California. What do I need my passport for? And then I started putting two, two together. Our, I was with the Oakland A's at the time. And they were playing up in Toronto. And I was like, uh-oh. And I started kind of like my heart started racing a little bit. Like, I might be getting called up. And uh, thankfully, I had my passport, but I didn't have a suit. And it was team rules to get a suit. Anyway, to kind of shorten the story, I had to go to a ball. I take a red eye. Uh, I, I get caught, I get the news that I'm getting called up to the major leagues. And I fly on a red eye to Toronto. I get in at like 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, all right, I, I'm, I'm kind of out of it. I wake up. We have a, a night game go to the ballpark and I'm on the bench the first day I talked to the manager he's like hey you know you had a long night last night just kind of watch see what's going on and then tomorrow you're going to play I said okay well the eighth inning comes around uh, the first day that I'm there and we're getting blown out the Blue Jays are beating beating us pretty good and he's like hey we're going to get you your first step back go go hit and I'm like oh geez I got it kind of was kind of out of nowhere so I go up there and the first, I want to say the first two pitches, I was good. Like I was, it was normal. Yeah. And after I took the second pitch, my heart started racing and I was like, oh my God, like I'm in the big leagues. <laughs> I, started, I had like, a, like almost like a little bit of a panic attack. Yeah. But not in a bad way, not to where I was like, oh, like, like losing it. But it was like, oh, wow. Like I was like so excited. Awesome. And I end up, I end up striking out. I swung at two really bad pitches that weren't even close to the strike zone. I was very anxious, as what we would call it. Yeah. And uh, then my next day, I got the start, and we were facing Dana Evelyn, uh, Evelyn, and he was actually a pitcher with the Oakland A's uh, the year before, and I'd got to catch him when I was in uh, spring training. So I kind of had an idea of who he was as a pitcher or whatnot. And then I hit a home run, a game-winning home run off of him. And so that was my first home run was in Toronto. And, uh, yeah, it was – yeah. from that, it went – you know, I kind of had my ups and downs from there. Yeah, well, you did. I mean, you had some struggles 
with the minors and then going up to the majors and back down. Mm -hmm. And how, mm -hmm. how did those struggles help you grow as a person? And maybe talk about what happened a little bit. Well, you know, I think, uh, no, when you get into this world of like professionalism and it, maybe it's a little bit different from my college to business, but I, I want to say there's probably some similarities to where you walk into a room and you don't really know what you're expecting. Like, you know, kind of what you've learned getting there, or maybe yeah. you don't even know that you're just talented at what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, time starts going by, you start kind of having an idea, but if you, you know, for me, I had an epiphany after I got sent down uh, in 2012. It was for the, I think I had sit down the first time. And, you know, my mom, I just had a meeting with the manager, uh, coaches, and they're like, hey, we're going to send you back down to the minor leagues. I had started the year off in the big leagues. And I called my mom up after, and my mom's, you know, she's upset. And she's like, she's my mom's wanting to blame everybody under the sun except for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, just being a, a mother. Yeah. And I remember just halfway through that phone call, and I just it just hit me. I was, I was like, look, mom, this isn't the manager's fault. This isn't my agent's fault. This isn't uh, our GM his fault. I'm like, it's it's my fault. They gave me the they gave me the opportunity. Now maybe it wasn't the opportunity that I was hoping for, but I still at the end of the day I had an opportunity, yeah. and I didn't take advantage of it. I said, "But Mama, just listen to me and let me be clear that I'm going to figure it out, and I'm not going to stop trying until I figure it out." I'm like, I don't want you to worry, you know, oh, Josh. because this is just what this what I'm going to do. And if I don't figure it out, like at the end of the day, I'm going to exhaust all resources. And I didn't, I, as long as I could look, look myself in the mirror and say, I put my best foot forward and there wasn't any facades of saying like, you know, being easy on myself every day, I was going to expect myself to go and work my butt off until I started getting answers. And did, you ever feel, did you ever feel like quitting? <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, probably when I was younger, well, after I remember there was a couple of times the first, my first full season of, of being out and I was in Peoria, Illinois and Ryan Sandberg was our manager and I was with the Chicago Cubs and they were just treating me terrible. And like there was, I couldn't do anything right. And I felt like that. And so in turn, I allowed them to, I allowed them to make me feel a certain type of way to which my place sort of becoming worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to go back and from that, I, I would just always, you know, to tell guys nowadays, like, all right, try to learn from what, what, what you can mm -hmm. and filter out the rest. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we're our own coach. We, we coach our own selves the best that we can. We're the ones who have to kind of motivate ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis is what we do so often, uh, you know, playing 162 games in 187 days. Yeah, no kidding. That's, you know, I can't even imagine. Um, 
Now, when you went back down to the minors and you were determined that you were going to figure it out, was that about the time when you changed your bat swing? Yeah, that was, so I had kind of been tinkering with some things a little bit before that, but I finally, like, that kind of just put the nail in the coffin. I was like, hey, I need to make some major adjustments. Yeah. And I need to start seeking out some and trying to figure out what it is that I need to do. And how did that, I mean, to change your complete bat swing is a major change. Mm-hmm. How did that improve your game? And was it difficult? I mean, it was very difficult. It took a lot of hours. It took a little, you know, obviously people in our organization had seen me as a certain type of player. And then now I'm going and changing things and to where I had to kind of fight, fend off other people as well. Uh, but I mean, to say if it worked or not, I mean, I went from, being up and down in 2012 at one point, probably the worst player in Major League Baseball statistically to the very next year, playing my first full season in the major leagues. And I finished fourth in the MVP voting, which is, you know, the top honor for a player to get. Josh, what do you think the key characteristics are that someone really has to embody in order for them to be at the top of their game, no matter what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think the first and foremost, you have to become a not just a good, but a great self-evaluator uh, and, and being honest with yourself. But, you know, I would say when I was younger, I would beat myself up and thinking that that would be me, you know, kind of bringing humility or whatever to myself, which that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is looking at... Uh, an experience, a time, whatever it is that you're doing and saying from a non-emotional standpoint of saying, okay, what, what did, what went well and what didn't go well? Yeah. And being honest with that and seeing, and and not being afraid to make adjustments and, um, you know, so it goes from, it goes from, you know, a feeling like a beating yourself up is is just a, a, a term that you use as opposed to a self-analysis that's thoughtful versus it, just yeah thoughtful and not as emotional yes right <laughs> so key. to not yeah not trying to take the emotions out of it because once you you know from my experience once you allow emotions to kind of take over us we stop learning Now, as I said earlier, when I was a younger kid, those emotions of losing and stuff like that drove me to want to succeed more. Yes. But also, I had to iron out a lot of probably bad habits because of that. Yes. And um, to versus just kind of looking at it from an analytical standpoint and saying, all right, hey, this is the adjustments I need to make no worries. Let's go, let's get to work and not be afraid. Okay. If this doesn't work, let's try something else. Right. So that openness to possibility has to always be there for, because the the goal is to be successful, right? Yes. And the, the goal, uh, you know, success doesn't happen overnight for, for most individuals. Um, so there's going to be trial tribulations that you have to kind of iron out and work through. And yeah, those who have the clearest minds normally prevail at the end. Yeah. Yeah. 
Good. I'm learning some good tips here, uh, Josh. Like you are one of the most beloved players amongst Toronto Blue Jay fans. And you did win the American League at MVP in 2015. And I'm sure mm -hmm. everyone listening to this knows that that was a super highlight year for you and, and really on the heels of, of not, a, not a great year. So just describe how meaningful that was for you winning MVP, but more than just winning it, what else did that do for you? I mean, I think it gave me some validity in the game of baseball. You know, I've been in 2000, 13 or 2012 I went from one of the worst players in the big leagues to 2013 finishing fourth in the MVP voting and then 2014 I dealt with a little some a few injuries uh I still think I've maybe placed in the top 10 in MVP that year and but then going in and saying like hey there was some things I felt like I needed to work on going in from the 14 to 15 season and being able to make those adjustments. And that was the first time probably in my life. Like I knew, I just, like, it didn't matter. Like there was nothing that affected me. Like it didn't matter what anybody said. It didn't matter what had happened. Um, nothing could affect me to get me off my game. Wow. Right. And I knew going into the season it was going to be like that just I knew where my body was at I knew where my mentality was at and I knew that I had made the right adjustments to go into that season and uh, being traded from Oakland to Toronto that year before you know that gave me just a little bit of probably more initiative to make sure that you know I, I was gonna cross every T and dot every I yeah yeah, I um so you were manifesting like that was that's how you would describe manifestation, you know, couple Well, I did. I mean, manifestation like with my words, I so I went to arbitration to an arbitrator and I told our arbitrator to end my case because they were going over the last couple of years of my career and I would finish fourth in the MVP voting, like ninth in the MVP voting or something like that in 14. And I said, I want you to just put it on paper that making this move from Oakland to Toronto, that I'm going to win the MVP in 2015. And that's how we closed our argument. Now we lost that argument or we ended up losing the case, but we ended up, I ended up winning, you know, the MVP the next year. Yeah. I remember watching the clip when you and you, you were with your mom sitting mm -hmm. together and you got the call and uh, that was really special to watch that. And yeah. you were able to celebrate that moment with her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, my mom sacrificed a lot for me to be where I'm at today and, yeah. you know, helped me in a lot of ways to, to be who I am today. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't just myself. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't just rewarding for myself. It was rewarding for her probably more than it was for me. Yeah. Because I'd already seen it happen. Yeah. Yeah. But that for her, for her, it was, you know, you know, her son that. Yeah. That she raised. That level. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a Blue Jay game in September when mm -hmm. your team, the Minnesota Twins, was playing. And when you came out on the field, like the whole audience stood up and gave you a standing ovation. And I think that mm -hmm. happened um, every day that you played in Toronto, which mm -hmm. really speaks to the Blue Jay fans and mm -hmm. um, how they love you in particular. But if you were to make a comment about your experience with, with the Toronto fans, what would you say? 
Yeah, um, from day one, they were always very accepting to me uh, from whenever I got traded over and, you know, to when I come back to this day. Uh, I think they enjoyed the uh, energy that I brought to the game, the competitiveness that I brought to the game. And in turn, you know, I, I get, you know, people coming up to me all the time, like, hey, I never really watched baseball until you and Jose Bautista and Evan and I can, you know, we, there was some really, you know, cherished memories for, for them. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty neat to, to think of. Um, And it's, it's, it's quite the experience to be able to play in Toronto because it's not just Toronto, but the entirety of Canada that really follows you. And, um, you know, to be able to go on the road and experience the fans, you know, when we were, we would play in Seattle and it would be 70% Blue Jays fans yeah to where they would be selling our merchandise in a visiting store like that never happens yeah and uh especially you know at a professional level and so that just really speaks to the volumes of you know the support that we got and you know it's it's always nice to feel appreciated to especially where you have played somewhere in the past and um because it just makes you you know feel like what you're doing is is at a good cause for sure and yeah. i know toronto fans are always asking you if you would come back to toronto and how much they would love you to finish out your baseball career mm-hmm. in toronto i mean i don't know what are the odds of that being a reality i have no idea i wish i i mean i wish i knew <laughs> but yeah. i mean obviously i'm under contract with the twins for the next couple of years but uh, i don't know we'll see if there could be anything that could happen i think uh, from my viewpoint, at some point, the probably doors would be open for me to want to go back. But um, just because to this point, you know, those have been some of the better memories for my career. Yeah. And but at the end of the day, if that if that happens, it happens. If it doesn't, you know, the, there's only so many things as a human, you know, that we can control. Yeah. And I try to focus more on those things. Yeah. Versus the things that uh, aren't really in in my control. Yeah. Good for you. I'm just thinking that I I wasn't sure I was going to share this story that that I was told recently that you were at a Maple Leaf game Mm -hmm. and then you went into a, I think, a bar or something that was near the stadium and you Mm -hmm. walk in and there was two couples sitting there and there was a guy with a uh, Donaldson number Mm -hmm. 20 jersey Mm -hmm. on. And you saw that and walked up to him and kind of put him in a headlock and said, Hey buddy, where did you get that Jersey or something? And he looked up and his wife looked up and it was you. Yeah. I mean, I just thought that must've been such a delight for a fan (laughs) to, uh, (laughs) to to have that happen. So good for you for doing that. Yeah. He was, he was definitely had a moment of a shock and didn't really realize (laughs) what was happening. And, yeah, then he kind of came to it a few minutes later. Like, hey, man, that was awesome. Can you? And we took some pictures together and stuff like that. So it was fun. Just love that story. Yeah. Um, so, Josh, I'm going to switch gears now. You know, we have an investing audience that listens to these uh-huh. podcasts. So, I wanted to talk about your 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 sports card collection because you've been collecting since your preteens. You've got a couple hundred thousand cards in your collection, and you know, it always was a hobby for you, but at what point has it turned into an actual investment strategy? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I started, I started, I started collecting from a very young age, like you said, 
but probably I got pretty fortunate about a six, seven months before the coronavirus uh, pandemic hit to kind of start getting into it a little bit heavier. And then anybody that is familiar with sports cards to this day, like knows that kind of from, you know, unfortunately, I mean, they're kind of, they kind of correlated together. But once the coronavirus pandemic kind of started going forward and with the lockdowns and everything, sports card collecting just started going crazy. Wow. And uh, that's when I think not just myself, but a, a lot of people that, you know, have money and that appreciate the nostalgia of card collecting and, and having, you know, these fine pieces of, you know, art is kind of what how I think a lot of people view it. Um, and, you know, you can associate that to, you know, a guy that you cheer for, uh, the, whoever plays the sport that you like. And once I started kind of seeing that there was money to be made in this, that's kind of, and I kind of started about six months before, but that's when I really started getting into it. I kind of went into the grain pretty good. Yeah. And then, um, you know, was able to start kind of making that green work for me more. And, you know, the interesting thing about card collecting is there's uh, different avenues to collect for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like the top tier, which is going to be, you know, very uh, expensive cards, probably, you know, $100,000 more per card. And um, you kind of have like mid-tier collecting, which can be like anywhere from like $1,000 to, you know, 50 plus thousand. And then you have kind of like your bottom tier cards, which could like they, these bottom tier card, you know, for me would be like more like prospecting on guys, younger guys and, you know, getting these cards to where you have to hold them for the value to increase and see like it could go to zero or it could be become the next big thing and uh so you know with those guys paying out they can in turn make a lot of cash right okay but what are the drivers that determine the value of sports cards would you say well i mean obviously it's the person who uh how much someone's willing to spend on a card but i think and that would that would probably be like your top tier cards. It's kind of hard to know what the it's just some of these cards are so rare that you have to buy someone out of the card, right? To where it's no, it's the money's worth more than what the card is to them, right? And so to get access to those cards, does everyone have the same access where they can go on eBay or? Do people like you that are serious about it and have a portfolio of cards, a significant mm-hmm. portfolio, mm-hmm. your portfolios in the millions of dollars in this, in this, mm-hmm. what I would call a very niche alternative asset class. Mm-hmm. You have access through brokers that better than the average person. Well, I mean, with the internet and everything that's around now, you have eBay, you have, there's tons of like auction sites out there now. Okay. to where sports cards are just going and, and they've been breaking records after record after record to where you can go and 
sign up to these auction houses to where you could have the opportunity to go buy, uh, you know, what I would call a blue chip piece. Okay. Uh, you know, something that's like your Amazon in the stock market to where this card's not going to go down. It's going up. The only difference in sports cards then is in, uh, in the stock market, uh, there's several, but one of the major ones is, you know, a card's not going to split. Yeah. And so where this is going to be one firm stock and these, these cards, they're, they're not multiplying anymore. And most of them are numbered and there's a, you know, I don't want to say it's a finite, but it's pretty close to finite to where maybe one or two more cards maybe get put into this category, but it doesn't, it doesn't, cards aren't getting added to whatever it is. Okay. Now, if someone was listening to this and said, I want to learn about investing in sports cards, first of all, you know, what is the process that they would have mm -hmm. to go through or some steps? And um, what are the most important aspects about card collecting or investing that you would recommend that they think about? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, first off, I mean, I think, well, obviously before investing in any type of thing, you want to try to get as much education on it and knowledge of it as, as possible. And then you could make your mind, like I said, there's multitude of routes that you could take to invest in sports cards. For me, it's something I enjoy doing. Yeah. And, and it's something that uh, obviously I believe in because I've put a lot of money of my own money into it. Uh, but I enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that's the most, important part yeah and um you know so it's really to each to each their own like if you want to make it's like anything if you want to make a lot of money with something you need to invest in the right areas mm -hmm. and you need to and it's going to have to be a larger amount amount, and understand the risks there's going to be risk to anything right and um, like I said, it's what for me. It's you know what's smart. What 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 do I enjoy? And I'm not going to put myself at a risk to where if it was to bottom up, like I'm just all in cards. So right, okay. And is there a perfect card that you're looking for? A perfect card. I mean, there's a, there's a few cards out there that I've definitely wanted. There's a, you know, there's a Brady, it's a contender's autograph. It's numbered out of a hundred. Um, my buddy has one of those. I've uh, been trying to get that from him for a little bit, but that's close to a million dollar card. Wow. And, and uh, I have, I mean, there's a Michael Jordan PSA 10 rookie, although it's not as rare as some of the other cards. I think the population reports like 228 or something like that. So there's a decent amount of them, but the card's so iconic and the player's so iconic that, um, you know, especially from the coronavirus and plus his documentary that came out, The Last Dance, the card went from 30,000, 40,000 to overnight going to 100,000. And then within the scale of six months, it got up to 700,000. Oh my. So like when you start looking at, 30,000 to 100,000 to 70,000. Then it's settled back down. It's settled back into the area of 
four to five hundred thousand dollar card. Mm-hmm. Um, but and as we know, you know, people that have money, like mm-hmm. that have real money, once they have a piece that they appreciate, good luck trying to find it again mm-hmm. because they want it and they don't need the cash. Yeah, and so now the people that have the money are going to hold them and. You know, so I definitely know collectors that have multi, like they'll, they'll find one card and they'll try to buy it all up. So nobody else has it. Right. Right. And then it becomes more rare. Yeah. Speaking of which, if there's anyone listening to this that, you know, is in card collecting or has access to some cards that maybe you yourself don't have access to, would you, Mm -hmm. like, if they got in touch with me, would that be okay? Would you, would that be? Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking to buy cards. Okay. So, I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I don't even, I don't really consider it. uh, I mean, it's a hobby in a sense to me because I enjoy it so much. So it is a hobby still to you. Not, not something that you're doing seriously for to get an investment return. Well, I'd say yes and no. Okay. Cause you still want to win as we know. Sure. I want to win, but I mean, at the end of the day, like, I'm going to make, I want to make money off of it just because I have invested a decent amount of cash. Yeah. So, um, with, you know, with that being said, the, the great thing about, you know, the trading aspect, the selling aspect of everything is that once, especially when you hit on a you know, specific individual, maybe he was cheaper prior to I mean, you, you look at an Amazon stock, I mean, from how they progressed from, you know, a bookstore to now where they are today, right? Yeah. That's, there's similarities in, you know, Tom Brady specifically was drafted in sixth, seventh round quarterback. His cards weren't worth anything. And then he turns into, you know, a guy that's won nine or eight or nine Super Bowls. And now his cards are selling for a million dollars. Yeah. So you can get into guys cheaper and then once they get to a a point to where it's worth it for you to move, then you move on and you get into some more blue chip stuff. Yeah. And so like, that's just more of the investing part of it. So I want to win and and make money off some of my other cards. So then I can not use my own cash. I could take that money that I've earned from that and then get into some bigger stuff. That's not going to move. Right. It's going to go up or, you know, if it goes down, it's going to be very little. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, you know, your card collection investment is something that you do as your hobby. It's personal, but you, you know, you also have your uh, wealth management group, all of your traditional investing and, and um, Mm -hmm. you're you're actually quite a conservative investor. Very, very conservative. Yeah. Which is great. So, um, Okay. Well, thanks for that, Josh. Uh, now I just want to move on. You've, you've turned 36 years old recently. Mm-hmm. You've become a father. Uh, your little daughter is just over a year old. Mm-hmm. And what has being a dad taught you about yourself? Uh, I mean, I think that I'd say the biggest thing is I think as a kid growing up, your mom you or for me i'd be like mom like why why are you doing that why are you saying it? she's like because i love you and i'm like all right well 
I don't really, I still don't understand that. And she's like, well, you will when you have a kid. And I think that love factor and that uh, is what probably the most that I've gotten to learn after the, uh, you know, after her being born and being able to build a relationship and that bond is you would do whatever you had to do for her. Yeah. The, this that feeling of love is kind of um oh you know just a really special feeling to have mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and your partner brianna uh is canadian and you've mm-hmm. spent the last few months in the toronto area off mm-hmm. season so what have you been doing just for fun and to keep in shape yeah i play basketball um try to just stay active and moving around and try to stay athletic um just and then running and chasing after the baby. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. And, mm-hmm. and you're heading back, I guess, spring training starts soon. And um, spring training for the twins is in, um, is it Fort Myers? Well, we're technically in a lockout right now. So there's no telling when spring training is going to happen. Oh, really? With everything new going yeah, on? Yeah, so with everything that's going on. So, I mean, who knows? We'll see how it transpires. I'm right. sure there will be one at some point. but. Uh, that table that said okay and josh when we talked earlier you told me that the book uh called relentless written by tim mm-hmm. groper was really relatable for you and mm-hmm. tim is known for being a master at mental toughness and for helping other high level athletes break through their limiting beliefs and because you've achieved such great success it certainly wasn't a straight line for you um clearly you've had mm-hmm. setbacks and challenges so with all of your life's experiences to date, what would you say are the key attributes that you believe are the most important for someone to consider while striving for their own success? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think being a great self-evaluator um, and, and taking the emotional sense out of it um, will become, it was, was very much a big part for me. Uh, I, th- I think because when you have that now, when you know yourself better than someone else knows you or you're in your game and, and to when you have the, qu- the answers to the, to the test. And so when someone, you know, as humans, their first instinct, especially when they see somebody that's doing something great or is on the verge of doing something great is they want to make that person doubt themselves. And so maybe they could take the idea or maybe they could take their energy away from it. And then now they have their own energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but whenever you are secure in yourself, now people can't take, they can't make you doubt yourself anymore. Right. And so there's a, there's a facade of, you know, people saying, oh, have confidence in yourself. Well, there's two types of confidence. There's fake confidence and then there's real confidence. You know, fake confidence is, you know, puffing your chest out and you didn't do any work for it. You just blew air up in your chest. <laughs> you know, the real confidence is you put the time in the weight room, you put the time, you build the muscle where so you're not puffing your chest out. That's just how your chest sits. Right. And that's just who, that's who you become. Yeah. And, you know, that's just an analogy that, that I can, you know, give to, you know, hopefully the audience can kind of understand that, but, uh, you know, to be able to have, the accountability because that's what you're doing for yourself too is you're holding yourself to a standard 
Yes. And, and, and not to where you're, uh, you know, you're beating yourself up, but Hey, if I want to get to where I, I'm going, I want to go. Uh, and so I think that leads me to the, the second point is to have goals for yourself and don't, yeah, I would say like you have like your day-to-day goals, which is like, Hey, you want to knock off like and be realistic with these goals and make sure that you're constantly stepping off and, and, and able to hit those check marks, but then have like your big goals. Like, what do you dream of? And, and I try to, you know, what was great for me as a kid and when I, why, when I transferred to high school, my high school coach, I remember going up to him and say, Hey, I want to throw 95 miles an hour. At the time I threw 81, 82. Right. And where most coaches would have told me like, no, like you're crazy. Like you, you're throwing 80 miles an hour. Yeah. Which is already like you're not, amazing. You're not going to throw 95. I guess what the like realistic person would say. Right. But he wasn't afraid to let me dream. Yeah. And I said, I said to him, Hey, I want to throw 95. His answer to me was, well, you have to work for it. It's not just going to come. You got to work for it. I said, okay, I can do that. Did you do it? By the end of the, by the end of, I didn't get to 95. I got to 94. Wow. Josh. Which was, you know, a big step for me. And, um, you know, so what I tried to give to other people is say, Hey, I, don't be afraid to dream, but you, you can't, you can't just have big dreams without the small dream. Like you have to be able to kind of check those off because if you do, then you get discouraged Yes, because people want it today, you know, or they want it yesterday. <laughs> like yeah. that's just how people, that's how people are driven these days. So you have to have your day-to-day goals and then you have to have your long-term goals, which are, you know, where you see your life and, whatever it is that's going to make you happy and make you uh, feel successful so and Josh, what are your dreams today and what what do you still want in the future you're still a young guy you've got a few more yeah. years of playing mm-hmm. MLB baseball but what what are you dreaming about for the future uh, I mean I think the biggest still in the moment I still want to play at a high level uh, of, of my sport like I mean my what I'm doing in my life is my dream mm-hmm. like, so I'm still you know, it's the, it's living a, the dream. Yeah. I'm living my dream, like still today. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I think obviously having a child a partner, like you start having other dreams as far as like your family is concerned. Yeah. Uh, but still like, I mean, a big part of my focus is being able to play at a high level and, and do what I have loved to do for a longer part of my life. Yeah. And you've got a, a facility that you're um, a sports facility that you're mm-hmm. starting to invest in now for the mm-hmm. future. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean it's going to be it's going to be a top of the line studio for kids to develop, and um, you know from in Alabama, you know to where a lot of that stuff's probably not at their fingertips. Yes, and to where I kind of wanted to give back to that area and especially for myself having the knowledge and putting people in the right place to be able to help kids, you know, fulfill their, their own dreams. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's something that I think, I, I mean, not, and obviously it's something that I've invested a large part of my life of acquiring knowledge and experience and being able to 
uh, help. Help and lead and coach um, other young athletes coming up. I think that's a really, really admirable thing to do, Josh. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you spend time with kids and fans like that. You'll take the time Mm -hmm. to uh, be with them, which is always appreciated. Um, This is like longer than I normally would do an interview, but it's been so wonderful to have you here. I can't thank you enough for imparting a lot of those uh, wisdomisms mm-hmm. to this audience and um, and really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You got it. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. In closing, I would like to wish everyone a wonderful holiday season, and I hope you all have a happy new year. If you would like to know more about the Canadian Alternative Investment Forum Conference, we are still planning on hosting it on April 28th next year please get in touch with Tori or myself. Take care, everyone. Bye for now.